Amen. How's everybody doing? You guys okay? So Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. That's where we're at. We have been speaking about this launching of the first church and, and how appropriate is that given where we're at as a church, as God is launching us out. Um, I hate waiting. I'm just going to say it. I'm not a patient person. How many of you guys are with me? I don't like waiting in airports. I don't like waiting in line in particular for food because I'm usually hungry at that point. Um, I don't believe writing a check at a grocery store is an appropriate form of currency. It drives me nuts standing in line at a grocery store, and she, she, it's usually a she, can never find her pen, and she's writing a check. Um, I just generally don't like to wait for things, and, and this is wrong, I get, because Jesus says to wait in the Bible, and this is where we're at in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Let's read it together. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, gives you an idea of his political persuasion, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and by falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Elkadama. I don't know if I said that right. That is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They put forward to Joseph, called Bar-Sabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the heart of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. It's the word of the Lord. So we hear this passage where they have now 
lost Judas because he betrayed Jesus and killed himself and now has not been numbered among the twelve. And here they are at a place in the upper room waiting and needing to make a decision, a leadership decision. And there's a lot, I believe, that as we are now in this place where we're launching Renovation Church, where we're the body of Christ, there's a lot from this passage in the Word of God that we can glean from. First of all, think about this idea of waiting. Here they are. Now, again, I've already confessed to you and feel a little convicted about the fact that I'm an impatient man. I don't like to wait. And here we see, just, just historically, the Law and the Prophets have foretold of the coming Messiah, right? And they've waited thousands of years. For the Messiah to come, they waited. And Jesus comes. Jesus, uh, in the course of history, comes as the Messiah. He lives the perfect life no one can live. He dies, and he's risen from the dead, defeating death and sin and Satan and, and freeing everybody. They've been waiting for this Messiah to free them from their sins, to atone for their sins, to set them free to, to release the people of God, and now Jesus has come, and he's died, and he's risen again, and they've witnessed the resurrection, they've been witnesses to him being alive on earth, and now they see him ascend to heaven, he's taken up, and now here, God says, go. As, right before he ascends, I am giving you this great mission. I want you to go, and you're going to change the world. But wait. <laughs> Waiting waiting, Jesus comes, all of this stuff happens. They're witnesses to it. He commissions them with the great commission and wants them to go, but wait. He asks them to wait. There's some things in this waiting that I think are remarkable. There's some things in this waiting that they do that lets us in on what it means to wait for God. You see, waiting is not a passive thing. Waiting is an active thing. What do you do when you wait? I'll tell you what I do. I generally don't. I generally bowl through it, move ahead, mess everything up, and then pray. How many of you guys are with me? That's how I wait. I, I, I go forward, I go and I do it, and, and I don't wait, and I, and I mess things up. I plow ahead. Some people, maybe when you wait, you get distracted and disinterested. You get passive and distracted, and other things come along, and whoop, whoop, you just take a side trail, and you're gone, and you get distracted, distracted and disinterested and, and fall away. What did they do when they waited? They gathered together. They gathered together. They prayed, and they were unified. They gathered together in this upper room. They prayed together, and they were unified. And, and these are huge things for us right now as we see God moving in this place. He's asking them to wait for a particular reason because the Spirit of God is coming to empower them so they can go do what he's called them to do and launch the local church, turn the world upside down. But in this moment, Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. He's commissioned them. But he says, wait. It's very important. Now is not the time. I need you to wait. How many of you guys have ever said that to your kids? Wait. Wait a minute. Hold on. I say it all the time. And as a father, you understand that in a particular moment, waiting may be a very, very important thing. 
My kids love to get the mail with me. I live on River Road. So Nathan comes running. I grab him by the arm, and I say, wait. He doesn't want to wait. He wants to run across the street and get the mail because somehow at five years old, getting the mail is very exciting. But how many of you guys know that it's very important when I tell him to wait because a car is coming? Wait a minute. And I hold his arm. And he just fidgets and, you know, swings around and I hold him. And then I say, okay, look both ways. Now we can go. In that moment as a father, the waiting is very important. You know, you're a young Christian married couple and you're just not married yet. Nothing worse than that word. Wait. Wait. God has something incredible for you. Wait. It's, it's so huge in our lives in so many different contexts, isn't it? As young people, when you're like just getting into graduating from high school, going to college, you want to launch out into the world and get a job and do all that. And God's saying in some areas of your life, wait, hold on. Hate to hear it. Just want to go. Wait. I would imagine after witnessing the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the commissioning of them to go, now Jesus says, wait. That this was very difficult, but they did it. They went and they waited, but they waited actively. They gathered together. They prayed, and they were unified. So we see in verse 12 that they went a Sabbath day's journey. So then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. It wasn't too far. It was about a Sabbath day's journey was... Uh, a little over half a mile, about 0.6 miles. And, and the reason they say a Sabbath day's journey is because that's as far as you could walk without breaking the law on the Sabbath. So that's as far as you could go, and that's about how far it was. It was not very far away. And we see in verse 13 that then they, Jesus, or the Word of God, lists the disciples. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, the other Judas. That was a bummer. Then in verse 14, we see all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I think that's significant here, and I want you to take a look at it. I believe in verse 14, we see something pretty remarkable. We see Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we learn from Scripture that Jesus had at least five brothers and two sisters. Here um, in verse 14, it says Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers were there. I don't know how many. And they were worshiping. And they were praying. As you're looking for evidences at this moment of the resurrected Christ, to me, this is very significant. Now, I have a mother. She's here. And I have a big brother. Neither one of them, I believe, would stand up and declare publicly that I am sinless and would worship me as God. How many of you guys think that's true? <laughs> she raises her hand. I have a big brother. Here's Jesus' little brothers and his mother in the upper room praying and worshiping him as the sinless God of the universe, as witnesses to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, there is, 
there is a very resounding piece of evidence for the fact of, of, the, of the fact that Jesus Christ was resurrected and sinless in his God, right there. His mother and his brothers are in this upper room. My brother is not sinless. I would not declare him as the sinless God of the universe and worship him in an upper room. I have the scars to prove that my brother is not sinless. He's a great man, but he's not sinless. And here are the younger brothers of Jesus and the mother gather to pray, to devote themselves to prayer and worship. In those days, Peter stood among them, but I want you to recognize something else in verse 14, that they were doing in their waiting. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Guys, this is huge. Prayer precedes doing in this passage. Prayer proceeds the going. Jesus had commissioned them to go into all the world and turn things upside down. But before you go, gather together and pray. This is convicting for me because I'm generally the kind of person that wants to go. And sometimes I think in my spiritual life and in my church life, I've looked at those who pray um, negatively because of my own personality. And I thought, they just want to pray. They don't want to do anything. And I think there's two kinds of people, and maybe this is generalizing. There's those that want to pray, and there's those that are very patient in prayer, and there's those that want to do and go. But there's something that we see here in the Word of God that God is asking us to consider in the mission that He's given us, because we share the same mission that this first church has, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. But what we see here in this passage is as they're waiting on God, they're praying, that prayer proceeds doing. The reality is we could just go and do what we think we should do and bull it over and just plow through it and mess it all up and then pray afterwards. How many of us have ever done that before? And what God's asking us to do is to wait and to pray, to consider, to to pray and seek God. You know, I think this is huge for us at Renovation Church. There is a mission that God's given us in the presenting of the gospel to every man, woman, and child in these zip codes But there's a reality about what he's called us to participate in. And that's this. That only God can change a human heart. Amen? Only God can transform someone's life. Only God could have done what happened in my life as he's changed me and continues to change me. Only God can move in the hearts and the lives of people to get them to recognize their need for him. Only his grace can save them and redeem them and transform them into people that live for him. Only he can do that. And so we need to gather and we need to pray. Amen? We gotta pray. We gotta seek God. I heard someone say this once, and I can't remember who I'm quoting, but it's almost as if prayer is like the the air war before the ground troops move in. The idea of of softening up the ground before you move in. And what I recognize as we go as the body of Christ, as people, and the gospel goes with us, that only God can do what he does in the lives of people, and we need to pray. We need to pray for him to move. We need to pray, I think, for him to break our hearts. I don't know if this is controversial or not, but I believe that prayer is mostly about God moving us, not us moving God. 
He's already promised to do what he's going to do. He's already said in his word who he is and revealed it to us in his word and what he wants to do in the lives of people. I think a big part of why we need to wait and pray is so that we would not somehow move God to do something, but we would allow God to move us. That we would ask God to align us with his will and what he wants to do. That we would somehow, in our prayer, become a part of what he's doing. How many of you guys think that may be true? We see them praying. Gathering. Gathering and praying is a combination that I believe equals God doing something in our community and in our lives. I think these two things that we see in Scripture cause unity. I think these two things that we see um, the early church doing causes unity. We see that they gathered, that they prayed, and that they were unified. It's almost like gathering and praying equals unity. If you're in a marriage and you have strife and difficulty and things are going hard, stop, gather, pray. And I believe God will bring unity in your marriage. If you're struggling as a family and you see arguments and yelling and difficulty and strife and distress, maybe it's time to stop, gather together and pray and let God bring unity in your family. If you're in a church and there's difficulty and there's relationships that are struggling and there's division and there's things happening in the midst of a missional community of a church, I believe God's called us to stop, gather, and pray and allow him to bring unity. Gathering together often and praying together often breeds unity, bringing us to a place where we're of one accord. And we see that here. He's bringing all these people together who've witnessed the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. These are people who have been with Jesus and seen, witnessed the resurrected Christ. He's bringing all these people together because they are about to form the first century early church that turns the world upside down and brings the gospel to the world that has transformed the face of human history. Before that happens, he says, wait, gather together. They pray The Spirit of God comes and empowers them in chapter 2, as we'll see, and he brings unity. All these people together. It's an amazing thing about the church and the body of Jesus Christ. There's a bunch of people sitting in this room that would otherwise probably never interact with each other. But you know what we have? We have witnessed the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. And as we come together and we gather to worship the God that saved us, and as we pray, God will bring unity in this family right here. And as God unifies us and empowers us through his spirit, he's going to enable us to bring the gospel to the people of this community. Amen? How many of you guys think that's a good thing? That's one of the most amazing miracles of the body of Christ. It's how God brings people together under the unifying fact that Jesus died for them and saved them and loves them. And as they gather together, as they pray together, he gives them one heart and he unifies them. Amen? They were together with one accord. Prayer is not a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. Bill Hybels wrote a book years ago, I think it was in the 90s, which was, I think, a clever turn on a phrase, but says a lot. You're too busy not to pray. 
This is a challenge to me. I feel like doing is more productive than praying. But the reality is our doing could be in vain unless we're on mission with God and wait and pray and allow him to align us with what he's doing. Amen? You know, we're committed to that as a church. We're committed to gathering and praying and aligning ourselves with what God's doing. Let's take a look at what else we see in this passage. In verse 15, in those days, Peter stood among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. I want you to see something here and look on to the next verse, I'm sorry. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 15 is interesting. Peter, throughout, as we see, has become a spokesman for the apostles. Peter stands as a leader for the church. Peter is now, if you think about it, this man who was very outspoken, as you read through the Gospels, this man who was very... um, I don't know what's the best word. He was zealous, but almost to a fault. Peter was always out on the edge. Peter was always the first one to talk. You see this thing that God placed in the heart and in the life of Peter that just makes him this natural leader, but it's almost like Jesus had to really shape him and and calm him down, right? I say it all the time in my job. Um, we're talking a lot right now about moving people from different bureaus, and I supervise a particular bureau. And so we're ready to promote somebody, and there's a couple different people that we're looking to promote into, into a couple different bureaus, and I was talking with my boss. He's like, well, which one would you prefer? And I said, I want that guy. And my boss said to me, okay, he's very zealous, a little bit arrogant, and thinks he knows more than he does. So my boss said to me. And I looked at him, and I said, I would rather calm down a zealot than raise the dead. and I've found in leadership that that is always true. It's easier to shape somebody who's already self-motivated than it is to raise the dead, somebody who doesn't want to do anything. That's why I want that guy. That's kind of who Peter was. So you see this character, Peter, who stands above the others, who God's called and chosen to be a leader of men. And you see Peter in this situation. And Peter says this, In those days, Peter stood among the brothers... The company of persons, it was about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Good leadership follows scripture. Good leadership follows the word of God. Now, they're in an interesting situation. This is a very tough leadership transition for the beginnings of the early church. Think about this. This is, this is a massive decision that needs to be made, and it's a difficult decision because you have the 12 disciples here that Jesus picked himself. These are the 12 apostles that Jesus himself had chosen. And the 12 apostles represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's something here that has to do with representing the 12 tribes of Israel as the 12 apostles that were chosen by Jesus that are launching the, the early church in, in redemptive history, as the gospel goes out across the world. And it's fulfilling scripture, and we're going to see that in a minute. It's fulfilling 
the word of God from the Psalms. And he quotes two different Psalms. And so here they are, where Peter stands among them and says, look, we have a tough leadership decision to make, but scripture has been fulfilled. And, and Peter says, and he declares, we must follow the scriptures. Well, what does that mean? We got to have 12. And Judas, who lived among us, think about this, who they ate with, who they, who they camped with, who they thought loved Jesus, but had really been ripping everybody off for the last three years as he cooked the books. Judas, as we see later on in this passage, was not a good man who had a bad day. This was a bad man who really didn't love Jesus, who was close to Jesus but not close to Jesus, who said he loved Jesus but didn't really love Jesus. He loved money. And this man who loved money more than he loved Jesus had been ripping them off for three years as their accountant. Their CFO, he had been cooking the books and taking it for himself. And when they offered him 30 pieces of silver over Jesus' life, he took it. This man betrayed Jesus, killed himself. And now we're down to 11. But we need to follow Scripture. Good leadership follows Scripture. Good leadership follows the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Guys, there is a declaration right here that shows us that this is the inspired word of God. The Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. This is a declaration, one of the clearest declarations, the authorship of Scripture. This is one of the clearest declarations of the fact that we believe in plenary verbal inspiration here at Renovation Church. Plenary, the word, verb, let me read it, I'm sorry, so I don't mess it up. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration here at Renovation Church. Verbal meaning the word and plenary meaning the whole of Scripture is inspired by God. And here we see a declaration in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit co-authored with David the Psalms. And he quotes two Psalms where it talks about the field and it talks about the fact that they needed to fill the office that Judas left vacant. We believe the word of God is inspired and good leadership follows the scripture. Guys, we can make a commitment to you right now that this leadership is all about and will always be about the word of God. We're going to stand on nothing else but the Word of God. There is no other book like this book. There's no book in the Oprah Book Club that can transform your life like this book. There's no self-help book. There's no Best Life Now book. There's no book about what you can do and how you can behave and how you can make things better that can transform your life like the revealed Word of God in Scripture, inspired, God-breathed by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as the Holy Spirit spoke through David in the Psalms. So he has spoken and breathed every word of this book, and there's no other book like it on the planet. God has revealed to us who he is and what he is doing through his word. Amen? And good leadership is going to follow the word of God. We're not going to follow any other book. We're not going to make decisions about our lives or about the life of the church from any other book. 
as the Holy Spirit breathed the words of the Psalms through David, as he inspired and breathed the words of this book, we are going to stand as Peter stood on the Scriptures. And that's our commitment. David's voice, breathed by the Holy Spirit in the authorship of Scripture. No book on the planet like it. And as leaders, we're going to follow it. Amen? Let's keep reading. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Jesus, Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open. It's kind of gross. In the middle of all, his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Elkadama. Someone say that. Elkadama? Ekladama. Sounds like a good punk band. Mark, Mark Driscoll said that. I think it would be a good field of blood. It is written in the book of Psalms. And he quotes the Psalms. Guys, this is not a contradiction. What we see here in the book of Acts is we see that we gain more information about the death of Judas. We recognize in Matthew 27 that he hung himself, and now we gain more information as as this book speaks of the fact in the book of Acts that he, through the priests, acquired this field with the 30 pieces of silver and hung himself, killed himself, and take it two different ways. Either the field was on the edge of a cliff and and the branch broke and he fell and his entrails burst out, or he... I think, which is more probable, hung for a very long time from that tree as his decomposing body swelled and eventually fell from the branch and his his entrails burst open into this field that now they call field of blood. Sorry, in my job, this doesn't even phase me and you guys are thinking this. Let's keep reading. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to this resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So here they are making this huge leadership decision. They're gathering, they're waiting, they're praying, they're unified. And now God's calling them to make a decision, and they're following the scriptures. Good leadership stands on the word of God. And they come to this place where they say, we need to follow the scriptures. There needs to be 12 of us, representing the 12 tribes. And so they say, here's the requirements, and they set up the criteria. Now, there's two criteria for the apostles that we see. One is that he's a man, and two is that he's a man who's witnessed from the baptism to the resurrection, the ascension. This is a man among them who has witnessed Jesus from the baptism of John all the way to the end when he was taken up, witnessed the resurrection. And two men fulfill that requirement or those requirements. Joseph, called Barsabbas. Bar in the Bible, you guys see bar all the time, it means son of. So bar this, bar that. This is Barsabbas, um, son of the Sabbath. He was probably born on a Saturday. I don't know. But that's what it means. Barsabbas and Judas, or I'm sorry, and Matthias. 
They both fulfill these requirements. And I love this. Here we go. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Guys, this wasn't like a casino, okay? This wasn't Atlantic City. They weren't sitting around with cigars and visors on, just rolling dice. That's not what what casting lots was. they, They stopped and they prayed. And what we recognize here in Scripture is that this isn't a way that God has called us to make decisions, okay? This isn't a way from from now on how leadership uh, makes decisions, rolling dice or casting lots. We see this as a very unique situation in the Word of God. We see this as a very unique decision in Scripture because what we recognize is that Jesus himself picked the 12 apostles. And so what they do here is they pray. They stop and they look to God and they say, you know men's hearts, God. And we're asking you, who chose the 12, now that one has decided to leave us, to pick the 12th. And in the casting of lots, what they're doing in this very unique situation is they're seeking God. They stop again and they pray. You know the hearts of men. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. They didn't vote. They didn't... Um, engage in some sort of American democracy in the midst of their leadership of the local church, what they did is they looked to God and they say, you know the hearts of all. Jesus, you chose the 12 and you need to pick this one. And they left it to Jesus to decide. And Matthias was chosen. I love that Peter, in his leadership, addresses the Judas problem. He confronts it head on. Peter, Peter is a leader recognizes the fact that these men had been with him all this time, that they had lived with him, that they had known him, and that they, he recognizes, I would imagine, the great pain of this one who they thought loved and was with them, who was betraying them all along, and who killed himself and betrayed Jesus and took himself out. He took himself out. There's some very interesting theological questions that I won't completely address today. But I'll tell you what I think. And I think the question that comes to some, mind, some people's minds is that, you know, did Judas somehow lose his salvation? I don't believe so. I don't believe that he did. In that, I don't think he ever had it. We didn't earn it, our salvation, and we can't unearn it. Judas demonstrates for us something that's very scary. You can be close to Jesus, but not really close to Jesus. You can say you love Jesus, but not really love Jesus. We see demonstrated, as I said before, in the life of Judas, not a good man who had a bad day. We see a man who was far from God, who was exposed. He was exposed in the upper room at the Last Supper, when Jesus looked at him and said, one of them will betray me and called one of them Satan. We see this man who was stealing and loved money the entire time. We see a man who took himself out in his suicide and in his betrayal. God didn't make him do it, but knew he would. And Judas did it. 
And Peter addresses it head on. Peter addresses the Judas issue. The Judas issue. That's tough to say that five times. And he does it directly following Scripture and in prayer. And in seeking Jesus to choose the next apostle. I want to close by talking about the fact that at this point, as they prayed and gathered and were unified and followed Scripture, that now the stage is set for God to use His church, send the promised Holy Spirit. And I want to close by saying this, a couple of things. I shouldn't say that. I'm not really closing. In a second. <laughs> How many of you guys will give me five more minutes? Come on, somebody? Five? Anybody else? <laughs> Ten? No, I'm just kidding. He didn't, he didn't lift his hand. He just <laughs> the stage is set, and God is preparing to empower his church. And I see a couple differences between two men in this passage, Peter and Judas. I want you to think about this with, with me for a minute. Peter and Judas, both of these men had Jesus. What's the difference between these two men? They both had Jesus. They both had disciples, basically, for a missional community for those years as they hung together and grew closer to Jesus. Jesus spoke into their life. He prayed over them. He discipled them. He pastored them. As disciples, they interacted with the same people. Both had the same mission both failed Jesus. You see Judas's betrayal. We've just talked about Judas's failure. But you see Peter, remember this man who was so in one moment zealous saying, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And he declares it to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, you're going you're gonna to betray me. You're going to deny me three times. And you see in the moments of fear after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the, the crowd and the people approach Peter, and say, aren't you one of them? Aren't you with him? No, no, I don't know the man. Aren't you with Jesus? No, 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 I'm not one of his disciples. I don't know the man. Three times he denies Jesus and runs away and is broken. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? I'll tell you. Judas walked away in his guilt and his shame, and he killed himself. What did Peter do when the resurrected Christ appeared to him? He went right to him. He had a meeting with Jesus, and he repented, and he apologized. And Jesus looked at him, and he forgave him. It's, it's, a, lot, it's a lot like the difference between Saul and David, as you see these two men. You see Saul through the Old Testament in his arrogance and in his inability to follow the word of God as God through Samuel speaks to him and says, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites and I want you to kill everything and kill Agag. And you see Saul disobey God and not do what he told him to do completely. And as he goes to the crowd, as Jerusalem gathers in their victory and they're chanting, yay, and they're excited. And here comes Saul with Agag, the king of the Amalekites behind him. The one that God through Samuel told him to kill. And he brings him to the crowd to show how wonderful he is. 
Samuel approaches him and he says, wait, wait, Samuel, I know I screwed up, but just make me look good in front of the crowd. Just come on up here and worship with me. And one of my favorite scenes from scripture, you see Samuel say, okay, and he gets up on in front of the crowd with King Saul and he pulls out a sword and he fulfills the word of God and hews Agag to pieces and kills him. What was the problem with Saul? He cared about what the people thought. Not what God thought. And David, you think his sin would be so much worse. Here's David, the king, who's up on this roof and he looks over and he sees a woman in the bath and he's intrigued, as some men would be. And he goes and he calls for her and he sends her husband out to the front lines so that he would be murdered and killed in battle. And he takes this woman and his wife. And, 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 and I love, I name my son after this prophet. I love Nathan who comes to David and he says there was a man who had all the sheep he could ever want, all the flock he could ever want. And there's another man who has one, who he's raised from the time he was little. It's like a pet to him. He loves him, and he wants to have a feast. And he goes to the man with one, and he takes the sheep from him, and he kills it and uses it as his feast. And David stands up, and he says, who is this man? I'll kill him. And Nathan points his finger right in his face, and he says, it's you, David. What does David do? He falls to his knees. And he says, God, I have sinned against you and you alone. It's the heart of a man in arrogance who takes himself out or the heart of a man who recognizes his own sin and repents. Says, Jesus, forgive me for I've sinned. It's the difference between Judas and Peter. And we're going to see in a moment. And I want to take it from Mike. Peter, get up on the day of Pentecost. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. Thousands come forward. And I'm going to venture something that's not in Scripture, okay? I think it might be true. That maybe in the back of Peter's mind, he hears the voice of Jesus that told him from the first moment he met Jesus, when Jesus came out on his boat, and recruited him as a disciple. Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And as Peter stood as a leader among his peers on the day of Pentecost and preached the gospel, saw men come to Jesus and be saved. I would imagine that may have rung in his ears. This is a great picture of what God is calling us to. Wait. Gather. Pray. Be unified. Follow the inspired, God-breathed scripture and word of God. And allow him to send us where he is working and where he wants us to go. How many of you guys are game for that? Our mission is the same as theirs. And he's calling us to do what they did. Let's do that together. Amen? Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for what you've called us to. We thank you that it's bigger than us and that it's something only you can do. And so here's our prayer tonight, God, that we would repent of our sin as Peter did, that we would stop, that we would wait and gather together, that we would 
get on board with you and allow you through prayer to align us with your will. Empowered by your spirit, God, that we would be faithful to your scripture and that we would then go where you would lead us. That's our prayer. Use us, God, that every man, every woman, and every child, that you give us the ability to interact with, would have a repeated opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.